Let's do that hockey. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dauber Prospects Radio. This is episode 109. And well, if you were looking for the Chicago Blackhawks top 10 prospects, I'd understand because I've been just kind of ripping through the teams doing the top 10 rankings. But it is NHL fantasy draft season. The preseason's pretty much wound down. The regular season starts up. Uh, it's just around the corner. And uh, a lot of people will be doing their fantasy drafts. So I thought I would do an episode focusing on the Calder candidates going into the season. And then uh, for some of the, the deeper leagues that go a little bit further down, talk about some rookies who might be a little under the radar and have some fantasy value in some of the, the deeper leagues, maybe not the super deep leagues, but the deeper ones. So joining me for this episode, uh, I brought out the Dauber Prospects Radio original guest first episode guest none other than my good pal uh gus katsaros gus welcome back to the podcast yeah thank you very much that's a pretty big honor to be the very first guest so thank you very much appreciate it yeah the, the honor is is mine you set the bar uh pretty high and then you know established mm-hmm. the podcast with instant credibility that allowed me <laughs> to, to open the door to to bring in some of the other marquee guests i've been fortunate enough to have on the show like well, if Gus goes on, that's cool. Well, you figured if you start off at the bottom, you can just make better. There's nowhere to go than up. <laughs> no, I think it's more the former than the latter there. So if anyone doesn't uh, know who Gus is, Gus is one of the key writers and hockey analysts for McKean's Hockey and an analyst and writer for NBC Sports. Uh, he's been a big influence on on me with uh, my hockey scouting and writing career and a big supporter for me so i appreciate that and you can follow him on at cats hockey on twitter and uh the the man knows his stuff which you're about to find out so guys let's let's tuck in here let's let's have some uh some calder conversation about the 21 22 uh season calder crop and the guy i have at the top of the list is and this is a pretty loose order list uh it's you know it's it's subject to change at any moment but uh the player i'm perhaps most excited to watch this year and 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 have the the most uh anticipation for is cole caulfield with the montreal canadians um since his draft class i've been a big fan of his uh you know i've been watched him hard in his draft year and i thought that the way that he played the game despite being really undersized I really wasn't concerned about that I was confident that it would translate translate to higher levels of hockey uh he's just got such a knack for scoring his shot is excellent his playmaking is underrated um you know I don't think that his physical game is that significant of a deterrent for the role that he'll play if he makes it to the NHL in a top six role I don't think he needs to be a banger to be successful there and all he's done in his entire career at any level that he's played at, his progression has just never really uh, slowed down. Um, he was fantastic for the U.S. Uh, national team. He had a tremendous uh, two-season career in the NCAA, winning the uh, Hobie Baker Award last year. Then he had a, a cup of coffee at the end of that season in the American Hockey League, where he played two games, had three goals and four points there. 
Then he moved up in the NHL, and I think there's no looking back at this point. I think he's in the NHL. I think he's here to stay. Some of the other players in this like top 10 list, you could make the argument that they, they may or may not play. They may or may not play in a top six role. They might not play the whole season in the AHL or the NHL. I don't think there's any question Cole Caulfield is going to play the entire season in the NHL. I'm not sure what his rookie season upside is, but I'm thinking his career upside. I think this is a guy that's going to flirt with 50 goals more than once, more than one season in his career. Um, I'm really, really bullish on Cole Caulfield, and I'm very anxious to hear what your thoughts are on him. Well, we kind of saw a glimpse of what Cole Caulfield is able to do in the NHL. See, I actually think that there was a bit of a, um, a positive and a negative last year to his performance in the playoffs. One, there's a great narrative about him being in the press box to start. He comes out, he comes out smashing. He shows that he has a worth, a goal-scoring prowess, a very good offensive skill set um, that's ready to jump into the NHL. And just from the resume that you've just went through and, and all of a sudden he throws himself right into a, a hard playoff round on the brink of elimination and he's one of the key components to bring them back um so when you talk about calder absolutely he has all the pedigree and the ability to put himself into the contention of being even in that top conversation um but there is a bit of a negative side to this too so what I found from Caulfield, especially last season, was that he really feasted on the type of style that Montreal was playing. And that was a bit more of a um, quick strike counter transition game. So he put himself into positions where he'd get lots of pucks, he'd have lots of space, and had teams on their heels. So I found that he was most effective when he was performing that way. I felt that when he was static, he wasn't getting the same kind of scoring looks. So I, I think that there's an elevation to his game that we're going to find out where, where he actually fits in uh, in the NHL right now this year. Um, and we'll see him definitely as part of the Calder conversation. But I want to see him um, break out of that one mold of being a quick strike transition type player and show me a little bit more scoring consistency. And I don't mean by actual results consistency. Put himself into situations where he's able to use those skills to generate a lot more scoring and scoring chances for his teammates. Um, he's probably at the top of my list. Um, you know, if we might as well just cut for me, I think I'm, I'm an agent of chaos here. So I would love to see both Trevor Zegra and Jamie Drysdale be riding it out towards the end of the season. Both those players just missed that rookie cutoff by one, uh, one game last season. And how cool would it be to have two teammates just making um, such a splash so early in their careers that they're both considered Calder candidates? Uh, Suzuki's Calder eligible too? Sorry? Uh, Suzuki is Calder eligible too? Um, I believe he's Calder eligible, but I'm not really sure if I would include Nick Suzuki in the Calder trophy uh, conversation. Would you? I'm not. Even if he was available, I, 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 yeah, I don't sure think he, he is because be I'd have him on. I'd have him on my list, or he would have made the the McKean's yearbook list as well. But that's a really interesting point you made about um, Caulfield. There, um, I noticed it too, watching him in the playoffs, and I I wasn't sure if. Because he scored some really impressive goals on the rush, right? Just breaking down the wing. He's got a great shot. Uh, you know, he's he's very dynamic on the rush. And I'm thinking, is that just I'm more impressed with the goals he's scoring on the rush, or is he only scoring on on the rush? Because I've seen him score a lot of goals uh, on the power play at the NCAA level. Um, 
So I, I'm just wondering if that's something that a part of his game, because he's <clears throat> he doesn't have as much time and space at the NHL level, uh, and that you know he it translates on on the rush because you know he's just flying down the wing, uh, and his he's he's it's the same idea on the rush at the NHL as it is at lower levels. But when you get in the zone, maybe on the power play, you've got less time and space. You got to make quicker decisions. You got to move and think faster. Uh, if that's something that will catch up, or if you'll be more of a more of a, a scoring on the on transition in the rush sort of player. I like the idea of him getting a full like having said what we just discussed, and these are valid mm-hmm. points. Um, he got thrown into a game without having a lot of um, background to be able to kind of transition into the type of systems, not he was just kind of thrown in to perform. So you give him a full season with a lot of structure, with a permanent coach that really does take into consideration his skill set and his needs. Um, and then you're going to get a, I, I think that the return is going to be fantastic. Montreal has a dynamic player there. Yeah, they sure do. And his fan tracks ownership is, is 98%. So, you know, I think we're not, uh, we're not talking about a player that no one's ever heard of or, or is, is available in, in very many leagues at this point anymore. Uh, so the second guy uh, we can try about is Trevor Zegras. He is uh, Anaheim Ducks prospect. Um, very similar resume to Caulfield's. He's had a very good career uh, coming from the U.S. national team, playing college hockey. Played most of last season in the American Hockey League with the Gull, the the Gulls. Um, I like Caulfield better than Zegers because I think Caulfield has a better team to play with and better line mate options than, than Zegras does. Um, so I give the edge to, to Caulfield here. Um, and I also think that Zegras might, um, you know, centers often come into the NHL and, and get broken in on the wing. And then once they kind of get their feet wet, maybe in a year or two, move back over to the center position. Um He's 85% Fantrax owned. So, you know, fantasy players are, are pretty familiar and bullish on him as well. Uh, I like Caulfield's more than a little bit over Zgrass. Uh, you see them as, as close though? Um, I think that what you'll see is um, Zgrass kind of progress to that um, permanent level where he becomes one of the leaders of this team. And I think kind of similar to what you were just saying, but I think that if he's on a team where it's a harder point to score and he puts himself in a position where he's scoring more or providing more scoring opportunities etc etc that I think is going to be a little bit more dynamic and and a little bit more important Um, at least it would be into my eyes than rather having Caulfield who has a little bit more support so from a pure skills perspective you're probably right I think that you can give Caulfield that 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 edge and say that he might just be worthy of that um but at the same time, I think that you got this unique situation here where, um, and it kind of goes back to having Jamie Drysdale as well, having both those players performing so well that they're carrying their team at such a young age. Um, and as Anaheim is just trying to reestablish its own identity. So it, it's a nice little narrative on top of the fact that you have a team that can, or, or sorry, a player in Zegers that, that, that can at least challenge to be in the Calder Trophy uh, conversation. So I think that I might actually like him a little bit better just because he's going to be in the situation where he has no choice but to perform. I think Caulfield had a little bit of a cushion. So if anything does go wrong, he has a better support mechanism than Anaheim does. So I think that that might just, in my mind, just 
put the edge a little bit over for Zegras. Yeah, that's that's a fair point, right? It's another side of the coin where, you know, while Caulfield can enjoy the benefit of being surrounded by by a deeper roster and more talented players, it means that if he hits the skids for a while and dries up, Montreal's got other options. They can throw Caulfield in the press box and just say, figure it out, kid, watch the game for, for a week and, you know, reset. Um, whereas, you know, Zgrass is going to play 82 games unless he's injured. Yeah, there's a necessity there, right? Yeah. Speaking of injuries, uh, the next player I have ranked on my list, uh, which is which is pretty close to the fan tracks ownership overall, a uh, couple of couple of discrepancies. But I like Marco Rossi at number three, uh, center for the Minnesota Wild. So this is a 28 percent fan tracks owned prospect, and it is his D plus two season, his draft plus one year. Everyone at this point was thinking, um, hey, here's a guy who could uh, go straight from the draft into the NHL and have a bigger impact than some of the guys that were drafted ahead of him, like um, Quentin Byfield and Lafreniere. Didn't work out that way at all. Uh, COVID had pretty much everything to do with that. And this poor guy had, uh, he got COVID bad and he almost died. Um, he had a life-threatening um illness that he was dealing with um an immune deficiency i think it was or something like that not really sure of the details but it was all kinds of serious and so not only did he not play hockey last year um he didn't do much so he lost an entire year um which at you know 18 years old is is can't be understated i think he's going into a situation in minnesota where they're desperate for him to become a franchise number one center and they can surround him with some very talented players uh, like um, uh, the Russian, his name's escaping me. Kaprizov. Thanks. Uh, And Fiala and a whole bunch of other really, really talented players. Um, uh, I'm really high on Marco Rossi. He's a player that if I owned him in my fantasy league, I would be, counting on him to be on my active roster all year and contributing. Uh, what are your expectations for, for Rossi this year? So uh, obviously the only issue that I really have here is health and how exactly has well the past um, about COVID, how much of a future repercussion is going to happen and, and, and where does that kind of put him this year? As far as this year is concerned, I think that he has an opportunity to just kind of establish himself as a really good NHLer. And I think, to your point, I think that he has definitely got that star potential. I mean, you got Minnesota that's also in a situation where they're looking for offensive stars, and they're going to need to look for those offensive stars at a cheaper contract because of all the moves that they've made over the course of the season. Rossi fits the bill. Health is my only concern. Skill level really isn't that much of a concern. Repercussions are from, or at least long-term effects from COVID. That would be my uh, a smaller concern, at least over the course of his career. But in the immediate future, like this season, um, it's nothing just but a, a, a way for him to establish himself as a regular contributing NHLer. So does that really put him into the Calder Trophy uh, nomination? I think it does because after dealing what he dealt with, and if he's put in a, po- a position where he's uh, performing as well as any other rookie, you have to give him the credit that he, he needs from just getting back to a level to be competitive enough. This 
this virus itself is, is, is debilitating enough to take away a lot. And from a young player to go through something like that and then to be put into a situation where he's immediately expected to perform, I think that there is a lot on his shoulders and I think that he can do it. So this is a very uh, pivotal season for this young rookie. Yeah, I watched him uh, a lot in his last season in the OHL playing with the Ottawa 67s and he was the, you know, CHL leading scorer. And as, as great as he is offensively and, you know, you watch him with the puck and he does some pretty, pretty impressive things. I was more impressed with his play away from the puck, right? Like I went the, the first time I saw him play, I was like, wow, this guy's, he's, he's an impactful player and he didn't even have the puck on his stick. And then when he got it, it was like, oh man, <laughs> this kid's going in the first round and like early. Um, so that is, that is translatable at, at, at higher levels of hockey. So he's just going to bypass the American Hockey League, I think, and, and go straight into the NHL as long as he's got the legs and, you know, he can do the things that he could have done um, this time last year if he were healthy. Uh, so I think he might be a, a slightly underrated and a little bit forgotten player because, you know, he didn't, not only did he not make the NHL last year, he didn't make any league. So some people might've forgotten about him. His fan tracks ownership is, is only 28%. I think there's uh, an opportunity there for some people to look at drafting him. The next guy on my list is 88% fan tracks owned. Um, and I think his long-term future upside is phenomenal blue chip prospect. And I'm talking about Florida Panthers goalie Spencer Knight. Problem is he's got a bit of a roster blosker with a $10 million contract in Bobrovsky uh, that he's got to share some crease time with. He kind of came into the league last year at the end of the season after signing his pro contract and, and won some wins. Um, you know, I, you could maybe say it was a combination of him playing his way into the role and Bobrovsky opening the door for him a little bit. Uh, and he just burst right through. I'm not sure what, you know, Florida is obviously very invested in Poporowski and they're going to, they're going to want him to succeed and play well. And if they can have that scenario, I'm sure they'll be happy to be patient with Spencer Knight and put him in a season of learning opportunity. Um, but I, you know, I'm not really sold on Poporowski contractor or no, um, I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of pooped the bed a little bit and Spencer Knight just took the ball and ran and never looked back. Uh, so that's, that's my scenario that I, I see him coming in and, and being a Calder uh, candidate. He's going to have to play enough games in order to do it. Uh, he'll be in the NHL all season. The, the, my only question is how many games played will he have? Um, what's your take on, on the situation in the crease in Florida? So this is probably one of the most fluid situations where you have a team that not only was good enough to be, to put a nice little scare into Tampa Bay, at least early in the first round, um, but they went out and they made some improvements. They picked up, uh, they, uh, sorry, they brought back Aaron uh, Ekblad who comes back from injuries. So you have an established Florida Panthers team that's trying to take it to that very next level. They've improved enough in the off season to say, you know, even if we don't get elite goaltending and they do want to go down that route and put Knight into a position to take the reins and be the number one, they could probably do that. Now, the money part of Bobrovsky's um, 
that I think is a, is less of an equation than winning right now. Florida's in a, in a position where they need to win. So if Knight is the, the goalie that gets into that next level, he'll get that opportunity. So I don't know whether or not he'll get enough games to really be Calder Trophy nom, uh, um, eligible uh, because I just think that the dynamics of having a big contract like that just forces everybody's hand. You have to play him at least for a little while um, or give him the opportunity to win back the crease if he does end up losing it. Um, and from a long-term perspective, Knight is the goalie of the future. And you just never know. We always say, oh, you have these contracts in the NHL that are unmovable. You just never know. So if there is a possibility of moving Bobrovsky or moving off, even if that means taking a temporary cap hit in order to do so, because you know that you have a goaltender that can take you to that very next level, perhaps that decision is have to be made. And that probably won't be this year, but it is something that management has to be thinking of. So Knight, I think in the end this season, I think gets a split with Bobrovsky in games. I don't think that he gets the majority of games. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that he's going to become um, he's going to be put in enough situations for the league to notice that he is a Calder uh, worthy player. So that's not to say that he's not a star. He is a star and a cornerstone for Florida, but how much of that is really going to translate into immediate success this season? I'm a little skeptical. Hey, maybe Florida could trade uh, Bobrovsky to Dallas. They only have four goalies. No kidding. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well make a whole line out of it. That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, I mean, hey, if they, they do have to be thinking long term about how are we going to get out from the balance of this contract? Because, you know, Spencer Knight is, is clearly the guy that they're going to go uh, long term with. I think that his trade value would be easier to move um, now if he's playing well, as opposed to the back nine of that contract where maybe he's not playing as well and he's making a huge contract, right? He might might be easier to swallow that pill now especially if if florida says we'll take some of the uh some of the cap hit as well um okay so moving on my list a little bit uh let's talk about a forward i like alex newhook here uh center winger for the colorado avalanche he is only four percent fan tracks owned um and i think that's a reflection of the uncertainty of whether or not he's going to make the team I mean, Colorado is, is, is a pretty loaded team. He's definitely good enough to play in the NHL. Whether or not he's good enough to play in the top six of Colorado uh, right now, I'm not as sold on. They've got a pretty good roster. I'm not sure he's a player you want to put in your bottom six or have him play you know, 10 minutes or, or less a night. It might be better off giving him full-time minutes in the American Hockey League and letting him develop there. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of proven to be too good for the college level. Um, hasn't really blown it up in the NHL yet. Um, maybe they'll give him a couple of games at the start of the season and see how it goes and then make a, a decision from there. Um, I think he's got the ability to play in the top six. And, you know, if he's playing on a line with, I don't know, someone like Nathan McKinnon or someone like that, that's probably not too bad. <laughs> Uh, do you think he's a he's a Calder worthy candidate? Hey, always good to have support. It is, it is, and he'll have plenty of it um, uh, up front and on the blue line and in net too. Colorado's loaded for bear. I think he can crack it though. So, 
I think that he's actually stepping into an opportunity though, but he doesn't necessarily have to be one of the prime focus. And he's kind of like the opposite of what we were saying about uh, Trevor Segris um, and even Cole Caulfield. So it's kind of like a mix of both. So here you, he's put into a situation where he's on a team that is contending to make noise. They're looking for a championship. They can plug a very skilled player anywhere in the lineup and know that they can probably get a decent enough performance. Are they going to get something that is above and expe his expected potential? I'm not really sure because I think that the focus is for him to be more of a supplemental player. Um, and I'm not really sure he gets into the or into the, uh, the circumstances that will give him uh, the ability to kind of use that offensive skill set of his. So I think that for the most part, I think that he probably should play an entire season in the AHL. Go in there, dominate, show, show what you got, put him there an entire uh, uh, and see if he can take it to that next level while being the main focus and then bring him up to the NHL probably a season afterwards. Um, at this point, I'm not really sure whether or not he's going to get a full-time role, but I think that he is a definitely a, a, a big asset. I just not comfortable enough to think that he's going to make that much of a, a, a contribution on a team that's looking to win now. If he was in a situation, maybe like in Montreal, I think that he might end up playing there. Um, so I think it's just the way that he's kind of being broken into the NHL might be a little less um, focused on his development and rather on Colorado winning right now. Right. I think I'm totally in agreement with you, but, and that whole philosophy could go out the window if, you know, one of their top six wingers You're right. breaks a leg or something like that and is out for, right. you know, eight weeks or whatever. And then it's the Alex Newhook show. Uh, okay. So we like him. I think uh, it might be a season too soon for him unless everything breaks his way. Uh, we spoke a little bit about Jamie Drysdale as well, when we were talking about Zegras. Uh, he is next on my list and he is 45% fan tracks owned. And I like the way he has progressed and, and I think he's been put into positions that typically are, are too soon. And he was auditioned for team Canada world juniors in his draft year against some, some high pedigree NHL draft prospects and he forced his way onto the team. And by the tournament ended, he was one of their top defensemen. Um, and then last year with no OHL for him to return to, he was, you know, he's a refugee. So they forced him in the American Hockey League. And well, didn't he just look great there? And so they called him up to the NHL. And well, damn it, he looked pretty good there too. He just continues to exceed expectations and my expectations are high. He's a, you know, a first round top 10 or top 15 pick wherever he went. Um, I don't think there's much question that this guy has a very long and very impactful NHL career ahead of him. Does it start as soon as right now? So I love the skill set that he brings. And, and it's kind of funny how you mentioned that progression because that's exactly what it is. Are you going to put me in this situation? Okay, fine. I'm going to succeed in this situation. Oh, wait a minute. You're doubting me in any situation? Then I'm going to succeed just to prove the doubter wrong. So here you have a really good skill set that's already molded for the NHL, elite skating, uh, great vision, good offensive skill set. Um, there are some defensive holes that you still think, I mean, as a young player like that, just learning um, angles and, and, and being able to kind of fend off bigger players. Um, 
but Drysdale's ready. He's ready to perform. Um, the only thing that doesn't make him um, call the only like like his teammate Zegers, he's one game away from being ineligible to be a rookie. So he's kind of got a little bit of the logistics on his side. In the end, what I think is both those players are going to take lead roles on this team, and I think going to happen this season. So I think both those players are going to have enough of an impact to really make, well, hopefully, because they are in the West Coast, hopefully they do start turning some heads um, and they do get some attention because what they're going to do in Anaheim, I think, is better um, than what we might see from a bunch of other rookies in, uh, in the NHL today. Yeah, I think he plays the full season in the NHL. I think his American Hockey League playing days are over um, because I think, you know, he's just going to do it again. He's just going to be like, you guys think I should in the NHL well that I'm going to show you I'm, I'm NHL already I can play 20 minutes a night in a top pairing role at the NHL level and be successful my only concern with him in this context is I'm not sure that the offense is going to be there as a rookie and I think that the team's going to be okay with that and I think he's also going to make a lot of mistakes he does still have some holes in his game and I, but the expectations for Anaheim aren't the same as they are for Colorado I think they're going to be just fine with letting him learn on the job. Ah, you, you made a mistake. We got scored on. That one's on you. You know what you did wrong there? Okay, let's move on. Um, yep, exactly. Uh, I, I don't think that the NHL is a developmental level league. Um, so I'm not saying that he needs to develop in the NHL. I just think he needs to work out a few warts in his game. And I think there's a distinction there between those two statements. Okay, the next guy on the list is another guy who's probably close to being ineligible. He had NHL games last year, and it's a goalie again. It's the Bruins' Jeremy Swayman. Uh, he is 60% fan tracks owned, and who knows what's going to happen with Tuka Rask, uh, if he's going to come back or not, when he comes back. Uh, if that means that he'd go down to the minors, I think it would because he wouldn't need to clear waivers. They can just send him down. The other option in Boston is they acquired uh, Linus Elmark, who is, I think, a legitimate starting NHL goalie. He's got some, some Band-Aid boy label attached to him, though. He's got some injuries in the past. Uh, so I think the Bruins' crease situation is going to be interesting. And I think how these two play will have a lot to say about whether or not Boston welcomes Tukarask back you know, in January or whatever it is that he's expected to be ready to come back if, if they'll be interested or not. Um, how do you see the whole crease situation in Boston playing out specifically with, with Swayman? So I think that Swayman has the upper hand over Omar. Um, and I think it's because of uh, health, health still being a, a big concern. If you're going to run with a goaltender, you do re really want to run with that number one guy. I'm not really sure that there is a number one, true number one there. It might even be a tandem. Um, and that's not really a problem. That's where the NHL seems to be going. And tandems are fine, as long as you're getting adequate goaltending from both players. I think that Swayman will be just fine. My concern on uh, uh, from Boston is one that they're putting him in a situation where he really does need to perform. There's no matter of, like Boston has to be a contending team. Um, and I think that they might have some holes on their back end that may lead to a, uh, an increase in urgency or better goaltending coming uh, from Swayman and all market together. Whoever ends up playing the majority of minutes there is going to have to pick up a lot of slack because I don't think that we're going to be seeing 
that same type of defensive style Bruins that we've seen over the last three, four, five seasons. Now they still do have that defensive structure, but they don't have the players that they really uh, established that defensive game on. Their defensemen are actually much more mobile, so they contributed, I think, a little bit more to the scoring chances, but they've taken away some elements defensively, and I think that that's going to really play onto whether or not um, Swayman has a fantastic season or is just really bombarded and made sure that he's able to keep up with uh, uh, the type of goaltending that Boston really, really needs in order to become a contender. So I think that the, also from the perspective of having a little bit of a, a competition within the crease, health-wise or not, I think that might push one of those goaltenders to try to take that number one spot. Um, if that really does come down to it, I think that it is Swayman that takes that. Yeah, my concern with Swayman is, you know, I'm looking at his stat line on elite prospects right now, and it's last season was pretty sexy, right? He had uh, nine games at the American Hockey League. He had a 189 save percentage, 10 games at the NHL with even better 150 save percentage, two shutouts, a 7-3-0 record. Like, that's pretty incredible. It's a small sample size, and it's only 19 games in the whole year. So, you know, can he handle the starting load? Well, he played over 34 games the last two seasons at the NCAA. Uh, so he has shown that he can carry a high-volume workload. Um, the NHL volume workload is a little bit heavier than the, than the college one and his sample size at the pro level is while it's impressive, it's, it's small and let's just face it. Goalies are voodoo. Um, I've been totally sold on some goalies before in the past and they let me down and I've written off other goalies in the past. Um, Craig Bennington. And then a few months later, they went on to have these unbelievable seasons uh, and made me lose a lot of sleep so i'm clearly not very good at assessing the value of goalies so that's a little bit of concern but i you know it's hard not to like what you've seen last season and jeremy swayman and and being really bullish on them right i'm kind of like you for me goaltenders are a bit more of a voodoo item and it's just the fact that you need to have them dressed other than that um my assessment of goaltenders is kind of weak um, I also think that there's a lot of team effects that affect fantasy from a goaltender's perspective. So those team effects sometimes can be just as deadly. If they're not there, you could have the best goaltender in the league, but if they're not put in positions where they're able to do their best, um, you're going to find that out really, really fast. So yeah. and I just think that goes good enough that who knows. Right. So the next guy on my list, since we don't know very much about goalies, admittedly, we'll move on. Uh, I've got uh, Moritz Sider, Detroit Red Wings prospect, defenseman, 29% owned on Fantrax leagues. I'm really excited for him, but my concern here is that he's a better NHL player than a fantasy player. And while I think he'll be a very valuable player, player for the Detroit Red Wings as soon as this season um I'm not sure that he's going to put up the kind of offensive numbers in fact I'm pretty sure that he won't uh put up the kind of offensive numbers that would get him into the conversation for Calder Trophy um you know we haven't seen a lot of defensive defensemen win the Calder Trophy uh without um uh, not recently anyways there's, there's been some uh Barrett Jackman comes to mind uh, a lifetime ago he won it and i think he had like two goals that season or something really low like that 
Um, so I guess there's a chance, which is why he made my list. And I think he'll be a very good player, but I don't think Detroit will be a very good team. And I don't think he'll put up a lot of points. Um, he'll have more fantasy value in leagues that, uh, that count uh, stats outside of goals and assists, like hits and hits and blocks and whatnot. Um, what's your uh, scouting take on, on cider? Well, I think that uh, you're right in saying that he's going to be a better hockey player than he is going to be a better fantasy player. Um, and, you know, he's in a situation where he's in Detroit. So even if he was able to put up exceptional numbers, I still think that there's enough of a, uh, a learning curve in Detroit for him to, to kind of struggle for um, at least in year one. So I think what we need to see is from a fantasy perspective, he's probably not going to give you a lot of value. Does he enter the Calder nomination? See, I, I think that from the perspective, you just mentioned it too, Barrett Jackman is the last defensive defenseman to be even in the conversation, winning it. Like, I, it's very rare that we see anything but a, a, a phenomenal offensive talent win these Calder trophies. So even if Cedar was able to put together a season that is just incredible, I think that the Calder winner will eventually be the player with the most points or the most excitement, depending on if the point race is really, really close. Um, now, having said all that, um, Detroit desperately needs some kind of a foundational component to their blue line, and this is the player that they have uh, into which that they can kind of build that upon. So from a foundational perspective, he's going to get a lot of experience this year. I would suggest people just make sure that they, they kind of understand that he's put in a position where he has to perform, but he's in not necessarily happy. It, it, it's this is kind of a tough, tough point to kind of make. You're right. It's not a developmental league, but you have to put these players into positions where they have to develop. And this, I think, is going to be at most visible with more Cedar. He's the one that's going to be put in all those key situations and say, go out and perform. So you're right. It's not a developmental league, but he's going to have to do that in a season where Detroit isn't really expected to do anything other than just go out and play. So I don't think that he gets into the conference, uh, the Calder conversation. I do think he establishes himself as a foundational player for the Detroit Red Wings. And I don't think that the rest of the NHL is going to give him his due until moments like when Jacob Slavin started coming around and they started saying, well, he's a defensive defenseman. And that is the mold of what a defensive defenseman is in today's NHL. So he's going to fit into this, and Cedar's going to be one of those those um, rocks on Detroit's blue line. I just don't think that we have a lot to expect from in his first year. Yeah. Um, the last guy I have on my list is another – I think he's a bit of a reach, but uh, I think he'll have a, an offensive career, but I'm just not sure he's ready for the Calder now. And that is uh, Matt Boldy, and he's only 2%. Fantrax owned so not a lot of confidence in the fantasy leagues that he'll make the Minnesota wild roster this year so he's come out of Boston College he played uh two years there um 26 points 31 points in his first two seasons um 31 points in 22 games uh that's very impressive then he finished the year with um with Iowa in the American Hockey League and he had 18 points in 14 games there uh in between he had seven and seven at the world juniors for usa en route to a gold medal including five goals so this is a very prolific offensive player 
And he's shown that he can score at every level leading up to the NHL, but he's got zero NHL games played. So we don't know what he can do at the NHL level yet. And then I look at, okay, so what are, what are his options here with the Minnesota wild roster? Um, assuming Marco Rossi is their, their number one center on a line with Kaprizov and, and Fiala, that's their big guns. That's a big line right there. But then after that, you get some guys who I think are all better. Like they're okay. Second line players, but they'd be good. Third line players, Jordan Greenway, Marcus Felino, Ryan Hartman, like, these are Nick Bugstad. If these guys are on your, your third and fourth lines, then that's good depth. So I think there's a window of opportunity for him to play his way into a top six role as a rookie right now and, and have a good season producing you know decent offensive numbers. I think he just needs to convince the coaching staff that he's capable of doing it now and he can get their confidence and trust and, and play well enough defensively. Um, what's your take on Matt Boldy? I think that there's enough of a need for scoring in Minnesota, even if Rossi comes out and does end up lighting it up, um, that they have to at least give an opportunity for Boldy to go out and, and prove that he could score amongst um, NHL players. So whether that's like a, just a, an audition or, or what, I, I'm not really sure. I think that from a Minnesota's perspective, they, there's just not enough scoring up front for me to say that a player of his caliber doesn't at least deserve a shot. Um, so does that put him into the Calder conversation? Well, if he comes in and all of a sudden he starts shooting the lights up, then absolutely he does deserve that. And I think so even more so because he's kind of coming from a position in behind. Um, it's not like he's one of the forerunners expected to be a Calder uh, uh, trophy candidate. Having said that though, it's, there's a spot for him in Minnesota is it going to be enough for him to shine? Is there going to be enough power play time? Is there going to be enough offensively created opportunities for him to be, um, you know, prolific enough and, and dangerous enough to kind of shine amongst rookies? I think he'll have a decent first season, um, but I'm not really sure that he's going to be in the Calder conversation just because of the situation that he's in in Minnesota, not necessarily from the skill set. All right. I think we're on the same page with Boldy. Um, so that's the, those are the guys who I had ranked as my Calder um, candidates for the season. And I, let's shift gears a little bit. Now there's, there's a whole bunch of other guys who you could kind of fit in between the two levels that we're talking about. That was Calder. We're going to move on to rookies and deeper leagues. And in between, you've got a laundry list of guys who could play into the top there. Um, Tomasino made my list. We missed him. Um, Kravtsov, Byfield, Lundqvist, Addison, Byram, Denisenko, Perfetti, Soderstrom, Krebs, Harley, Podkolzin, Valeno, Zeri, Jarvis. There's a whole bunch of guys uh, that are less likely, I think, to make the NHL, um, but have all kinds of opportunity to be this year's Jason Robertson and work their way into the NHL. And by the time the season winds down, be in a top six role and being a key player on whatever team it is that they play for. Um, but moving on to the to the rookies, uh, I got another list of 10 players here. Uh, not really in any kind of order, totally random. So let's just start with, I got some teammates here, two guys from the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, you could probably pick three or four guys um, that could be, you know, rookies or sleepers in fantasy for uh, from the Leafs. Um, but Michael Bunting has made my list, and so has Nick Robertson. 
Um, you could talk about Ilya Mikheyev or Andre Kosh, um, maybe Alexander Kerfoot, uh, Dennis Mulligan, maybe even David Kampf. There's a whole lot of question marks for players, uh, Nick Ritchie, uh, who are going to be trying to crack uh, the top six with the Leafs and filling a hole vacated by Zach Hyman. Um, I don't really think Nick Ritchie is so much of a, a sleeper or a rookie. I think he's my favorite out of that group. Um, I, I kind of have him defaulted as the guy. Um, but you could talk about Michael Bunting. He's, uh, he's a Sault Ste. Marie Greyhound alumni. So, you know, the Leafs GM, uh, Kyle Dubas, uh, recruited him from his old team. And he looked really good in the NHL last year, scoring 10 goals. And he's looked pretty good in the preseason with the Leafs as well. Um, tremendous grain of salt with preseason scoring, of course. Um, and then you've got Nick Robertson, who was injured last year, didn't get much much playing time in. But the season before that, uh, he had a couple cups of coffee with the Leafs, even in the playoffs. And, you know, the Leafs fans were all salivating in anticipation for uh, Jason Robertson's younger brother, Nick Robertson, who had 50 goals in the OHL in his draft year. Uh, so, you know, the Leafs are the team in your backyard. I, I think you're pretty familiar with them. You've probably even watched some of their preseason games. Uh, <laughs> let's let's get your insights on how you see the depth chart for the Leafs panning out and who are the, the rookies and the sleepers that you would pick and prioritize in your fantasy draft. So I think that there is a, um, at least the way that I see it, is the Leafs weren't able to keep Zach Hyman so they tried to replicate Zach Hyman by bringing in Richie and Bunting. So Bunting is good enough offensively to replace the type of offense that Hyman grew into the type of player he was, because he was more of a grinder when he was uh, first broken into the NHL. Uh, but he developed a skill set. It's kind of like uh, uh, the anti-theory, you know what I mean? Like it's usually you come in and you smash and then you enjoy a nice career. He built a skill set where he was able to really put on um, – a lot of good offensive triggers. Um, so I think what you've seen here is Nick Ritchie is probably going to get a, a, an audition on that top line. You know, the kind of chaos agent to me would really love to see Bunting with Matthews and Marner. And I think that from the perspective of what Hyman brought to that line, it'll be closer to what Andreas Johnson brought when he was playing there rather than what Hyman brought. You're not going to get a grinder and a player that goes in and gets pucks. But I'm not really sure that Austin Matthews and his development really needs a player like that. Matt, uh, Mitch Marner is good enough to be able to carry it and, and, and do th things offensively. They put another potent element on that left wing and he could just light it all up. Having said all that, I'm not really sure that I'm convinced Nick Robertson is going to have enough of an opportunity this year to really get a, a, a foothold um, and establish himself as a, a, a true Toronto Maple Leaf. I have a feeling he'll probably end up being a Toronto Marnie for a majority, if not the entirety of the season. Um, that's not necessarily a knock on him. It's been a really kind of crazy time since his draft and his 50 goals and all of that. Like there's, there's a lot that hasn't gone necessarily right for Robinson. Once that train starts to really get himself on his tracks um, and he finds himself and where he's, where he kind of fits into the Toronto organization, he'll be just fine. I'm just not convinced this is the year for it. I think that Bunting has a lot of potential. So the problem I have is they're looking at the scoring prowess and, and, and they talk about his shooting percentage and it was exorbitantly high. So at the same time, he was playing in Arizona, getting top line power play minutes, getting 
top line opportunities. If he doesn't get that in Toronto, how much of his scoring is going to really shine through? So I think Bunting is probably the best rookie in Toronto. Um, and, and, and the player that will probably step up to that very next level. I'm not hundred percent sure that he's going to become the next Carter Verhage as, as I've been hearing and reading about. I just think that he's going to be established itself as a very good um, hockey player. Toronto at this point in time is trying to still be a contender. So they're going to consistently be changing things up to find that mix that puts them in a position to consistently beat the better teams in the NHL. And if they can't do it, they'll continue to tinker. So I don't think that there's a permanent spot up front with Austin Matthews. I don't think that that's Nick Ritchie alone. I don't think it's Michael Bunting alone. And I think that that uncertainty is going to affect his uh, uh, Bunting's um, productivity, at least short term. Yeah, I can see it being a turnstile position where they just whoever's got the hot hand that week or whoever's showing chemistry that that time, or if they're going against a heavier team, they'll play the bigger guy. Um, you know, it just changes from 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 game to game and even shift to shift, depending on Absolutely. how the the feel of the game's going. Um, a little sidetrack. We talked about Zach Hyman for a bit there and replacing him. He's moved on to Edmonton Oilers. And, you know, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and hockey shows as well. And I'm hearing a lot of people saying that, you know, they think that his offense is going to translate from um, Toronto to Edmonton. He's proven that he can play with superstar players and, you know, he could have a career year. I'm not sure that. I totally agree with that because while he played with Austin Matthews doesn't mean that he can play with Connor McDavid because they're very different players. Connor McDavid is a burner and I don't think Zach Hyman can keep up with him. I don't think he can keep up with the way that he skates. I don't think he can keep up with the way that he thinks the game. I think he's just like three light years <laughs> ahead of almost every player in the NHL. I think it's way easier. Well, I don't know. I've never played with them, but I would think that it'd be way easier to keep up with Austin Matthews because he's more of a shooter. You know, he, he wants to find the open ice, the soft ice, and you can go into the corner with your elbows up. And then, you know, if you know where he's going to be, rip him the puck and he'll just score from wherever, however you pass it to him and wherever he is, he'll just, just got the shot that he can score. So it's a totally different uh, dynamic. And while I think the intention is to play, Hyman with Connor McDavid. Um, you know, we, we've seen this, this show before where teams go out and acquire a player to play with their star player, be it Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby or Wayne Gretzky or whoever it was. And, you know, people are thinking, well, this is going to be great. Like Gretzky and Hall, this is going to be amazing. It just didn't work out. Um, so I would not be surprised if Zach Hyman just didn't pan out the way that a lot of people are thinking he does. I don't know if, if I'm like out to lunch here, you're smiling and nodding like you agree with me. You know, it's, it's interesting because I've been thinking about this too. What makes Connor McDavid so good is give me the puck, get out of my way. So I don't need somebody to go into the corner to get it. I'll get it myself. I'll skate it out and I'll do what I need to do. And I'll be the best player in the NHL regardless of who's I'm, who I'm playing with. The strength that Zach Hyman brings to a club is the ability to go from that first line because something is wrong and they're struggling and they need a little bit of a boost. And then when his job is done, he can go down to that third line because that line is struggling and they need a boost. Whenever Toronto was struggling, whatever line it was, Keith always plugged in Hyman. 
So there was a point in time where even the front, the the uh, the first line, Matthews and Marner, were just going through a bit of a tough time. He threw Hyman back on the first line, and then once they established their their mojo and they were getting into the scoring thing again, he dropped them down the line. Now all of a sudden, Tavares and Nylander were getting support. So that type of player that Zach Hyman is is great from the team's perspective because they could get a lot of positive, regardless of the fact of whether he's scoring or not. But to your point. If he's not playing on Connor McDavid's line because Connor McDavid doesn't necessarily need him, he's not going to get that kind of scoring opportunities that he was getting here in Toronto. Same thing happens with power play minutes too. If he gets power play time, he might get a little bit of damage just by being there and, and, and doing the exact kind of things. But is he going to score a ton just because he's going to play with in Edmonton with McDavid? I, I agree with you completely. I think that that's overblown. So let some other sucker have to deal with picking up Hyman or making the decision to pick up Hyman wherever they are in the draft. And if they want to overvalue, all the power to them. Make sure that you're making trades with that player during the season. Yeah, I think if I'm picking a player because they're going to play with Connor McDavid, it's going to be the defenseman that can create transition passes and get the puck up to him and just let him skate them the rest of the way and score the goal. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about some some old names that are new again that have been previously owned in leagues, and then they've just kind of buggered off and disappeared in uh, in Europe for a bit, and now it looks like they're coming back. Uh, the first one would be Vladimir Tachev or Tachev. So he actually played in the Quebec Major Junior League. I forget what team it was he played for. He went undrafted, but the Edmonton Oilers did try to sign him to a contract, but it was deemed uh, illegal or ineligible or whatever the case was. Um, and it just never worked out for him there or anywhere else. And he ended up playing in the in Russia in the KHL for a while. He put up some good numbers there, and now he's been signed by Los Angeles. Lots of opportunity for him in Los Angeles. They've got a very deep prospect pool. Um, they got a lot of players coming. So this is a player that I, I maybe kind of like um 50 50 if he makes it or not more short term than long term i think he's here for a good time not a long time um do you think he makes the team i mean if he plays in the american hockey league then you know who cares he's not fantasy relevant i'm not really sure that he has a guaranteed spot but having said that um la really needs to to add some kind of offensive component scoring goals was a, a was, was a bit of problem for the last few seasons um, Philip Deneau is a great addition, but again, he's not going to help you with a lot of scoring. So I think that the opportunity for Ketchup is to get himself into games. He'll perform adequately. Um, but, you know, he's more of a utilitarian player at this point in time. I don't think that he's a star. He's probably not going to get all those prime minutes and maybe not a lot of good power play time. So he'll be a secondary player. So I think that we there's a tier of players that kind of seem to always float into that that that. Um, that range and it's kind of like the Sergei Kostitsin range and, and, and where you kind of, he's stuck in a bit of a no man's land, so much potential, lots of star qualities, but you can't break through that one level. I think that this is what you got with Ketchup. This is a nice um, try by LA to add an offensive component. Not sure that they really hit a home run here. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at their depth chart here and ugh, I mean, as, as, as bad as LA has been lately, I don't think that there's a lot of opportunity for him to win a, a roster spot here. They acquired Victor Arvidsson. They still have Dustin Brown. They re-signed Andreas Athanasiu, who I really love. 
Uh, Alex Ayafalo isn't going to lose a job. Adrian Kempe, uh, you know, then you've got some question marks, Trevor Moore, Elias Anderson, Jared Anderson, Dolan, Carl Grundstrom. That's his competition. Those are the guys he can win jobs from. Um, and I think he can win a job from those guys, but I don't, I don't think he can play his way into the top six, at least, at least not right out of the gate. He'll have to slow burn his way in there and, and maybe, you know, earn a bottom six roster, play well and hope for an injury and then, and then get an opportunity up there. Uh, Dimitri Jaskin. He's coming back as well. Former St. Louis Blues prospect player, played a little bit in the NHL. Um, he had a, a really good year in the KHL last year, and he's been signed by the Arizona Coyotes. So there's another organization that probably doesn't plan on winning a lot of games this year. So it doesn't really have anything to lose if he flames out and doesn't make the team. Uh, do you like the chances of him making the roster? Uh, I actually do. I think that he even had established himself as a full-time NHLer before his run to the KHL. Um, but I just don't know about like a, as a dynamic scorer, probably not. He's probably going to be somewhere in the middle, um, in that mushy middle. And, and But he'll definitely end up playing, I think, in Arizona. I don't really think that that's a, um, a question. I just don't know whether or not. Like Arizona's nice that they revamped and, and they're much better, I think, than they were last season. But where does he really fit in as far as the grand scheme is concerned? I think that he would be a lower roster player, and that's, again, a fine choice. Um, but I don't see him playing himself out of a lower roster role. Yeah, he is signed to an NHL contract that's north of $3 million with a cap hit. So I think you're right. He'll make the roster. Um, I mean, he doesn't have a, as much competition as uh, as even Los Angeles would, would offer him. Um, he could yeah. be a top six I mean, I think they got Phil Kessel as the only and Clayton Keller as the only bona fide top six wingers. And I don't think Kessel's going to play the whole season there. It's a contract year for him. I think, you know, if he plays well enough, someone will, will acquire him in a trade deadline trade at the very least. Um, and his other competition, Lawson Krause, Travis Boyd. Yeah, no problem there. Um he might not light the lamp. I agree with you there. I think if you can get anything close to 20 goals, you got to be pretty happy with that, mm -hmm. but he's a banger. He loves to hit and, and he'll rack up some penalty minutes for you too. Um, so, I mean, if you're in a multi-cat league, here's a guy who will get you some points, but he'll also get you a lot of hits. He'll get you a decent amount of penalty minutes um, and probably a decent amount of shots too. No face-off wins, unfortunately. Uh, next guy I got is Jonathan Dolan coming back. San Jose loaned him out. He played in uh, Alsvenken, I believe it was, and helped get his team unrelegated and, and back up into a higher level. Um, so he'll be coming back to North America this season. Um, you know, when he left, I wasn't really sold on him. And he didn't play in the SHL or, or a higher level league while he was in Europe. So his numbers are, are good but I'm not really impressed, uh, but he is worth talking about coming back. He's only 3% fan tracks owned. So there's a wide opportunity for ownership here. Is this a player you would have any fantasy interest in? Probably not. Um, you know, having said that, uh, there's lots of opportunity to come in and establish oneself in San Jose. There's a lot of components that are really, really fluid. So can he come in and jump in and, and, be offensively effective enough to maintain a permanent role in the NHL? I think so. Is he enough to say that he's going to light the lamp and be a very 
effective player? You know, the reason that he's going to – the reason why San Jose gives him the ease to jump into the lineup is also the reason why I don't think that he'll have a lot of success in the NHL, at least this year, just because there's just not enough firepower there um, to say that, you know, there's they can lift up a spot – give this guy an opportunity. And I don't, I just don't think that he has enough on his own uh, to be able to generate that kind of scoring. So I think he does end up becoming a full-time NHL. I just don't think he'll be a very productive fantasy NHL player. Right. Well, I think one thing he's got going for him is one of the players that would have a top six role that uh, he'd be, you know, that would be blocking a roster position for him is uh, Evander Kane. And, and he seems intent on self-destructing and I don't think we're going to see him this season. Um, I think the way he's going, he'll be lucky if he can stay out of prison. Um, what do you, <laughs> what do you, uh, what do you think of his competition? I mean, he's a left winger, so it's pretty thin there. You've got Timo Meyer, bang. That's a no brainer. Cogliano, he could play on the fourth line. That's really where he'd be most effective. Matt Nieto, John Leonard. Um, you can maybe move like a, a Noah Gregoire or Barabanov, Balsers, Nick Merkley, maybe. Um, these are the kind of guys that he's in competition for. I think they're all in the same sort of tier, really. That's just it. He can kind of jump in, but he's pretty dynamic too. So to the degree, I think he's... I, ju- I just don't know if... Uh, even with the Vander Kane situation being so um, in the air, if they, if you take him out of the equation, all I think it does is it just shifts everything up one slot. And I, I think that that's just still not enough for him to be put into a, like a top six role or a scoring role. It doesn't necessarily have to be top six, but you, you have to get into those situations where you're able to, to score. And I just don't think that he's going to be in that kind of a situation. So I'm not convinced that he's going to be a, a um, an asset to a fantasy roster the year. So he does have other peripheral skills, though. So I don't think that San Jose is out of the question of keeping him out of the lineup. Um, even that, I think, is debatable. Um, but I just don't find that there's a lot of fantasy value with or without Evander Kane in the lineup. All right. Next thing I want to talk about is an Ottawa Senators prospect, Shane Pinto. He had a couple seasons in NCAA where he looked pretty good with North Dakota. And he is a second round pick from the 2019 draft. So he has a certain degree of draft pedigree working for him as well. He got to finish the season after his school year ended. Uh, He signed a deal with the Sens, his ELC, and he played 12 games at the end of the year with Ottawa and had seven points in 12 games. Um, that's pretty impressive. His fan tracks ownership is less than 10%. He's only 4% owned. Here's a player who has an opportunity to play arguably in a top six. And I believe we saw an injury to, uh, I think it was white last night where it looks like he broke his arm or something like that. Yep. Uh, so that just opens the door even wider. This, this could be a, a really good opportunity for, people to draft him in a later round of their, of their draft and get themselves a top six player uh, on a team that has some pretty good offensive options. Don't look now, but senators are a team on the rise. Yeah. It's one of those situations where um, the youthful exuberance is definitely going to play into his, uh, um, 
to his favor. So I think in the end, the Pinto has that upside of being a good second line center. Is he really going to establish himself as a second line center? He could. I mean, this is the season to do so. Um, Colin White being hurt, putting himself into a, a, a good, decent rhythm. He's had a decent preseason. I wouldn't say it's been great. Um, but I think that he has shown that there are glimpses of NHL player in him. Um, I'm not really sure he's an established star just because he's playing still in Ottawa uh, and the lack of, of, I guess, support is, is just not going to be able to elevate a lot of those numbers. So what I think that you see are the glimpses. You'll see a lot of flashes this season. You'll see a lot of good offensive moves. Um, you'll understand how just um, it, there's a lot of upside and then there's a lot of solid characteristics already. For instance, he's a decent enough two-way player that he can maintain the responsibility to maintain a solid NHL position. But is he good enough to be able to contribute offensively, even with some of the defensive maturity? Um, maybe not necessarily this year. So I think it's something that he's going to end up growing into. Um, Ottawa has doesn't have to do anything just like last year. All they have to do is show up. I know that they think that they're past the rebuild mode, but they're not. This is the year where they're still just trying to establish themselves um, and give their kids more opportunities to establish themselves and see what direction that the club really wants to go. I think that Pinto is one of those players that they're going to end up building with. Um, I'm not 100% con um, convinced that we're going to see the best of him uh, this particular season, but we will see flashes of the player that he's going to be along the way. Yeah, Sens fans should be pretty excited, especially if they can get Brady Con uh, Brady Kachuk's contract signed. Uh, there's a lot of things to like about what's happening in Ottawa. Uh, so there's a couple other players who made my uh, rookie watch list. You can you can read more about them in the McKean's yearbook. I did my late late sleepers article there as well, um, and a lot of these guys came right off that list. Uh, I don't want to talk about these guys. We're running out of time, but Riley Damiani, Radim Zorhana. Tanner Janot, Kiefer Bellows. Uh, these are all some, some players who have zero to low fan tracks ownership. Uh, if you're in a deep, deep league or you can stash them on a prospect bench, um, you know, Damiani was, was signed to Texas to start the season, but I think he'll, he'll play some games in the NHL this year. It's a question of how many. Um, so those are some prospects who could be fantasy relevant in your league. What I do kind of want to borrow a few more minutes of your time for, Gus, if that's cool, is I want to talk about scouting. Um, got my OHL credentials, uh, approved today. So I'll be able to actually get back into a rink again. I think all of us are really excited to be able to go back in, into the rinks and watch some games. Um, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are, are not only into fantasy hockey, but are into watching junior level hockey and, and doing their own amateur scouting analysis, um, be it for fantasy hockey or if they want to make a career out of scouting or whatnot. And one of the, the, the go-to resources that I think anyone who's interested in this kind of stuff, like how can I get better at identifying um, players, abilities and skill and upside and projecting them? Uh, there's, there's a couple you can go to, um, but one that we'll talk about right now is it's pinned on your Twitter account. It is the four S's of scouting. Uh, and this isn't new. You've been preaching this since I've known you a couple years. Uh, so the four S's of scouting are, um, skills, skating, sorry, the four S's of scouting are skills, skating, smarts, and speed. 
those are the four attributes that you think um, define a player, I guess. And you've broken those all down into a bunch of different subcategories. Uh, we talked about this on the first episode of the DPR show, but I don't really expect anyone to scroll back through 110 episodes and, and find that. So even though uh, they should, they should. Yes. Cause it's still relevant because we're talking about it now. Um, so give me a, give me an overview on that. And then maybe we'll just kind of have a little, a little chit chat about what are some of the things that we look at when, when we watch players, when we're, when we're, I use the air quotes here, scouting. So you're right. I think those four S's are essentially the foundation of what you're trying to establish when you're trying to figure out a skill set of a player. So I'm not going to use the word watch players. I'm going to say establish a skill set. That's what you're doing when you're scouting. So the first thing I would say, and, and this really blends off of experience, but right off the bat, get out of the mentality of assigning numbers to a skill. This isn't EA Sports, NHL 2022 or whatever. Skills are not independent. They have an interplay. So I'm going to use Alex Ovechkin um, as an example. Ovechkin is a shooter. His best skill is a shooter. Every NHL player has one and uh, elite skill. They may have a bunch of mediocre skills, but they have that one elite skill. And if they can surround themselves to support that one skill with every other layer from other skills, that's what's going to make them very effective. So back to Ovechkin. Ovechkin is going to go into the corner and he's going to hit that player hard and he's going to come out with the puck. Why? To take a shot. He's going to come down the wing and get open and try to beat that defender to take a shot. Why? To take a shot because that's his elite skill. When you're trying to establish a player when you're uh, um, in, whether it's live or through video or whatever the case is, you're trying to establish the understanding between their skills and how they interact with each other. We talked about Yaskin um, earlier, and he's actually one of the players that I think um, put a light bulb in my head. And the reason was because he wasn't dynamic. He never really got into any kind of scoring position. He seems to kind of really like being on the peripheral. But man, that guy's got some incredible hands. So while his skating was subpar, his IQ to kind of get into scoring positions wasn't that great. When he had the puck on the peripheral, players just needed to get into scoring positions and he would find them. So here's a player that understands his skill set and kind of played towards it. So when you're watching this guy, and especially through his development, you have to take notice. Sometimes it isn't about what a player isn't capable of doing. It's about how they're surrounding their best skills and supporting those skills with less mature or less developed or, or even, you know, less than stellar skills. You have fantastic scorers that can't skate. That's fine. As long as they can find ways to get into positions where they can take a shot and exploit those skills, then their skating is irrelevant. So scouting is an art. You base everything off of those four S's and you try to find the interplay between speed and skills and smarts and skating and the subcategories of, you know, quick acceleration versus good hockey IQ, which is better. How do they interact? Scouting is fascinating. We could do tons of time just on scouting uh, theory. Um, and we still only scratch the surface as to how to evaluate players properly. We haven't even gotten into the numbers aspect of this, but uh, we could talk about just how to build up that skill set, try to develop um, watching consistent things happening from a player, and then you see just the patterns. And, and, and 
it, it, it's almost this moment of enlightenment with you when you just really start to understand that these skills are working in conjunction. They're not supposed to, but they are. And that's what makes this player great. And sometimes these skills are what are, are, are working for a player and they don't necessarily work together, but that's what makes them great. So it's every player has that different combination. And once people start to understand that there's an interplay between skills and how they relate to how a player performs on the ice, that's when you get a really good talent evaluator. That's amazing. So one, my, my train of thought that's been kind of growing over the years for me here is I've been watching players and, and seeing players that I like, and some of them pan out and some of them don't. One of the more underlying constants that I'm seeing in players that are successful, that they might have great skills or deficiencies in other areas, but they've all been successful players that have made it or players who can process the game mentally fast enough to play at higher levels. And that's sometimes hard to see at the lower levels like the OHL, because for the elite players, it's, it's hard for me sometimes to distinguish, are they really skilled? Are there, is like their, their puck skills or is it their speed so much better that while they lack the IQ, it doesn't matter. They can just outperform these other players who, who will never play at a higher level other than maybe Canadian college or something like that. Um, and so I think a good example of that for me is um, Josh Hosang. He's extremely skilled, but I just don't think that he thinks the game well enough to play at the NHL level or really even the American Hockey League level in some cases. Um, you know, he's got other problems that, that might really be his underlying issue there, like attitude and, 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 and um, comp- uh, compete level. Um, but, I mean, you look at players and you think, man, he's just, you know, he's not that impressive. He's not the biggest guy or... He's, he's not a burner and, you know, I watch him shoot and he's got a good shot, but it's, it's not an Ovechkin shot. And yet he makes the NHL and you're like, well, how did that guy make it? And it's because he can think the game at the speed that the NHL demands um, that he doesn't need a half a second to figure out where the puck needs to go when it comes to him or where he needs to go to get the puck or where he needs to go to support the player that has the puck or where he needs to go to intercept the pass that he knows the other team is going to make. You don't have to be a burner to do those things. You got to be smart. Um, so for me, the ability to, to read and react and hockey IQ, whatever you want to call it, um, I think that is the most important skill level. Um, it's a deal breaker for me, really. Uh, you could be the fastest player in the world, but if you don't understand that you need to be on side, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Um, what I love to hear what, what you think of, of that assessment. You know, I used to ask, people always ask me, like, what's the most important skill? Smarts. You can always work with a smart player. And, you know, it's funny because the, the example that you mentioned here, too, one, knowing to go where to be successful, that's one thing. So a player has to have that naturally. Um, at the same time, too, though, and this is still intelligent and it's still hockey IQ, a player that can structurally play within the system that a coach has designed and be effective despite not necessarily being the most skilled player has value. 
So the player that I'm thinking about something um, along that line is actually kind of like Zach Hyman. Hyman, when he broke into the NHL, he was a good, solid foot soldier. I need you to do this. When A equals B, I want you to be C. I need you to triangulate. I need you to uh, be in good support. I need you to support high in the zone. Whatever he was told to do, he did it. The skills came afterwards. So players that are smart are not only smart because they put themselves in positions to succeed. They are smart defensively. They are they don't put their teams in positions where they have to scramble um, or have to break their style of play in order to uh, satisfy the whims of a, of a selfish player. Um, I, I think that whenever anybody asks me now, what is the most important skill? You give me a smart player and we can work to make him into a proper NHLer. Now, I'm not really talking about like elite stars and all of that. You could tell good skill sets and all that kind of stuff, but Players that you know that have that that head on their shoulders, that understand good um, the good game theory, that have hockey IQ, if that's what you want to call it, um, those are invaluable. Every organization, if all they had are really good, smart players, um, they could go far. Now, having said all that, the smartness also relates to the way that they're able to play because there's an innate quality in the skills that they're using that allows them to be able to think that. So they think ahead and their body automatically kind of comes. It's a one part, like it's not a, a, a that's not an individual component. The way that you think will be the way that you react um, and it shows and you'll see, you can't fix dumb. Dumb hockey players will keep making dumb mistakes and if you want a particular example of that, Nazem Kadri. Nazem Kadri is a great hockey player. He's rough, he's tough, he can score, he's got lots of potential, lots of vision, lots of creativity, but he keeps making the same bonehead mistakes over and over and over. How much is he helping his team if he keeps making these dumb mistakes? So there's an element that that's exactly kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at. You can teach good, smart players how to be better players. You could get players to become much more skilled. You cannot fix dumb players. All right. So we totally agree on that. So there's, I don't need any help there. Where I lack with, and I think maybe a lot of the people who are listening and trying to figure out how to, how to scout and, and evaluate players is what does that look like? How do you, how can you identify that when you're watching an OHL game or even an American hockey league or uh ncaa whatever the level is that's below the nhl what are some of the the calling cards that you draw on you like that right there that is showing me that this guy will be able to keep up with the pace at the nhl level he'll be able to identify he just reacts and anticipates the play at a speed that that'll happen for him he'll make it to the nhl because of that uh it's really hard to to distinguish that i talked about it a little bit earlier on where it's like is it just because he's just so much more skilled or faster or is it because he's smarter and it's hard to distinguish that sometimes what are some tricks that that you've noticed or developed to help you figure that out a couple of things one um i want to make this point first before i get into that i think that more scouts should start to understand a little bit more about systems and the player's roles within those systems because sometimes a player has to perform a certain way and is it because the player is doing that or is it because the coach is asking him to do something so i find players that show a lot of smarts are players that are 
within well-structured when they don't have the puck. They are not too far away from it, and they are relatively um, supporting whether or not their, their team has it or not. Um, and they're always in a good structural position. They're never putting their team in a position where they are trying to do something and the team has to scramble structurally in order to compensate for that. Smart players don't put their teams into that kind of jeopardy. So again, that's hard to, to not hard to pinpoint, but you just, you just know it when you see it because he's always there. He's always in that mark. Oh, he's always in that spot. Um, he's structurally sound. So I think that scouts and sell should understand the systems a little bit, just because I think that there's a differentiation factor that's required there. Um, the other thing that I would say is quick puck touches. A player that doesn't necessarily need to have the puck on his stick very long probably has already thought of that next move. So the puck comes to them, he passes it right off, goes off to the next spot. Or he comes out, puts himself into a position where he's in a spot to shoot and knows that he only has like a microsecond of time and the puck is on the blade and off the blade. So soft puck touches, the way that they kind of cradle and quick puck touches, I think are signs of intelligence because they're not thinking about what to do when they get it. They're already processed the game in its current circumstances two steps ahead. So those are just some early tells that you're dealing with at least a player that shows that they have uh, game intelligence. I don't want to, and I want to be perfectly clear. I'm not talking about dumb, like as far as a intelligence level, I'm talking about like from a hockey perspective, right? Hockey IQ. We're not talking about like Einstein's versus, you know, anti-vaxxers. We're talking about, you know, what the player is doing on the ice and how their body relates to where the puck is in the game right. situation. Not if they know the capital of Costa Rica or not. Exactly. <laughs> so, so here's something. So if you're listening to this podcast and you just listen to what Gus said about understanding what the systems are and what's expected of the player, that's something that might, if you're listening to this and you're a, a writer or a podcaster or whatever, or an aspiring scout, and you, you know you have a media or a scout pass, if you're working for one of these um, online scouting agencies like ISS or Dauber Prospects or whatever, you can interview the coach and the players and you can ask them those kind of questions about what's what's your expectations from the coach coach what's your expectations for that player why i noticed that all the time on the power play he's in this spot is that your design or is that just where he wants to be um so you can you can ask those kind of questions of the players and they're uh they're usually pretty forthcoming is what i found is they uh they don't mind telling you all about it and the coaches as well i mean i mean some of the stuff i guess they have is 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 secret but the kind of questions that I'm asking, I don't think aren't anything that the, the other teams that are, that are pre-scouting them don't already know anyways. Um, these coaches, they do tend to understand that they are going to get those kind of questions because they're dealing with players that are in developmental leagues, right? And chances are they're going to move on um, into more professional leagues. And I'm kind of really focusing here on, on scouting players that are draft eligible or recently drafted and developing into professional hockey players because once you get to that nhl level and i think that this is a very important point we were talking about tells earlier <clears throat> i think in developmental leagues you really know who stars are they shine above and beyond 
the rest of the crop. And I'm not oh, yeah. saying that the rest of the crop isn't skilled. It's just that those star players are just that much better than the rest of those players. So once you get to those higher levels, that gap really closes quick. Once they get to the NHL level, that gap is almost paper thin. So players that are able to adapt to pace are key. So when you're looking at a player jumping from a 14, 15 year old and at the pace that they were playing in, and then they get to, let's say the OHL, WHL, CHL level, and they have to adapt to that pace, how quickly they do that, I think is a form of intelligence. How quickly they develop is also a plus because you can see their skills develop. When you saw them in September, they're very different than they are in May. So what happened there, the gap, how does it change? Over time, things change. And now going back to the coaching perspective, every team in the league uses a very similar structure, whether it's a one-two-two or a two-one-two or whatever that is. And just watching enough, you can kind of start to realize what that is. Once you know at least the responsibilities within that system and you see that players are a little out of place, that's when you have that capability. And I love the idea of talking to the coach. You know, Peter Harling is always on the left side, but you know, the dude's a right winger. You should be playing on the right side. Why do you play? And when you start getting questions and answers to those kind of questions, you really put the tapestry together to understand why the player makes some of those decisions on the ice. It's, it's a bit of a, a, an after the fact, but understanding why a player did something with a little bit of an explanation from a coach that told him, do this, will give you the insight that you just never knew specifically, but just by watching a player perform on the ice. If he was supposed to do A and he did B, but B is what the coaches wanted him to do. He's going to go back to the bench and he's going to get a pat on the butt. You're going to be sitting there in the stands and thinking, well, he shouldn't have really done that. There's a good way to clarify all of that kind of stuff. So being understood or trying to understand just where um, uh, the skills interaction between players, how they fit that skills interaction within the greater part of the structure of their system and how coaches expect them to perform when in that system um, is very key. One last point before I stop here. A system is, is not rigid. Just because I say a team plays one, two, two, it doesn't mean that Peter's got to be the point man. Peter can be the left winger. Peter can be the defenseman. It's that fluidity of when Peter goes from being the center to the left winger, what happens afterwards? How does the team adjust? The smart players will understand, I need to move and to rotate. We see a lot of that in power play structures when teams are kind of rolling around in the offensive zone. You see that through the entire sheet of ice, 200 feet of it. And when a player shifts, and now they're no longer in the position where they're supposed to be within that uh, system structure, all the other players need to adapt. So you start watching these other players and start thinking, okay, well, that guy didn't take over that spot. Now there's a hole. Well, no wonder they scored a goal. So there's a real progression to all of that. And as scouting started to incorporate more ideas, I would say, from the analytics community, I think that the very next frontier here is skills development. So scouts will have a very leg up, um, I think, advantage because of the fact that they understand skills. And we hear a lot about skill stacking. It's exactly what I'm talking about. How does one skill formulate the other? How do they put them together? How do they interact? And how does that make the player? Take that skill set, put it into a system. How does that skill set interact within that system? 
How does that skill set interact when they're not playing the ideal part of their system? So there's lots of little interaction on the ice that we could talk about for days and never really get it down to the bottom of it. But that's kind of how I see it from a micro to a macro perspective of how I would evaluate a player's talent. Okay. Uh, one last question I want to ask you before we wrap this up, because we're going long. Um, but I'd really like to hear your thought on kind of late blooming players. Um, a lot of the players that I, I recommend here on, on my podcast are, you know, for the really, really deep, deep, deep leagues. And yeah, I think a lot of people like to listen for that. And I talk about players who maybe didn't have uh, a high draft pedigree. They're not high profile players, but all of a sudden they kind of come out of sort of nowhere and have a season that puts them on the fantasy radar from whatever league, right? Um, they play an overage season in the, and the CHL somewhere and they have a hundred points and then an NHL team signs them to, uh, to a contract as a free agent, or you have an undrafted player playing in college, does a similar thing. Um, signs as a free agent guys come over from Europe that were never drafted. And now they're 24 and they had a breakout season in the KHL. How do you distinguish, uh, or how do you, what do you look for in those kind of players where well, you have guys like Biko Lettinen and everyone's all, all excited for him. And, and it just doesn't translate guys like Brogan Rafferty was great in the American hockey league. And just, it's just not happening at the NHL level for them. And then some guys, it does. Some guys do, uh, find value in in the nhl um what do you what kind of advice can you give on on diff, on picking out the the gems from the weeds there so late blooming is a a bit of a tougher concept to kind of nail um but having said that i think what we've seen and in particular over the last 10 years, is a real focus on off-season skills development, not even training and weight training. And oh, you hear about players putting on weight or I got or, or I, I lost weight or whatever. They're out there working on skills. And again, I'm, I'm harping on this, but Zach Hyman is a great example. He wasn't a skilled player coming into Toronto. He worked on that in the off-season and used what he worked on over and over in game situations. So a blunt, perfectly, uh, perfectly acceptable answer for that is if player A's tendencies changed from season one to season two and those changes are positive, I think that that is an early tell that there's something drastically changing about this player. He would hit my radar to just focus a little bit more energy on. And hopefully you see that kind of trend um, continue. And if you don't see the trend continue, you could always drop a player off your radar. Mm -hmm. um, but in the end, it's really difficult to say, well, why did this one player uh, just blossom overnight? I think a lot of that has to do with the type of interactions that they have during the off season. I don't think that players need to be on the ice, you know, 365 days a year, but there are things that players can do when they're not, in practices, games, running around, uh, uh, dealing with a hockey season that can further help their individual skills. And if players invest the time and the ability to, to, to really cultivate um, that ability to learn 
and to adapt and, and, and adapting is really important and being able to bring in new insight and change the way that they perform in a positive way. Um, those tells are pretty, they're, they're, they're pretty early and you could start to key in on those and start to say, well, this player might have something. We might just want to follow that progression. If a player just happens to break out overnight, I don't think that that really is a thing. I think that there's a natural progression to it. And whether we've seen it or not, it is still there. It's just that we pay attention to the breakout season. Remember, I, I think I saw a tweet a couple of days ago where um, Michael Grabner was picked off waivers and then he ends up going and scoring 34 goals. Like who was to know that Michael Grabner would score 34 goals after being a waiver wire pickup early in the season? You just don't. Those are situations where it's just one-offs. And sometimes it really is just situational. He just got put into a situation where, you know, all right, go, go with it. And here you go. Have some goals on top of the way. Um, but for players that are developing, there are key points where you can kind of build that, the, the perception of where they are in their um, current development. And there are early enough tells to say that there's somebody that can potentially be a late bloomer. It's just, it, that one is a little bit tougher and you mm -hmm. really, really need to have a lot of information. And I also feel that that information isn't always on the ice. It might just be a maturity level thing that you need to talk to coaches about. So showing a, a, a dedication to getting better, to getting better at the craft and getting positive reinforcement for that effort, I think is the key to noticing a late bloomer. So do your homework. That's essentially what I'm saying. Do your homework. Do your homework. Watch live games, all those things. Gus, uh, on behalf of everyone listening to this episode, thank you very much for, for coming on and, and parting all of your, your wisdom upon us. It would be impossible for anyone to have listened to this episode and not learned a lot. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you giving me the time tonight. And uh, it's just lovely to, to see you and, and chat and get caught up again. And hopefully I can see you in a rink one of these days this season somewhere i mean marley's game or oshawa generals wherever it might be it'd be uh great to run into you on on at an arena and watch some hockey and maybe have a beer peter the pleasure is always mine thank you very much for the invitation it was a pleasure speaking to you tonight i just love talking hockey with you and i actually hope we don't get one game i hope we get lots of in the arena games whether it's the Generals or the Marlies or who cares. Let's just get in an arena and enjoy. Kingston's got a guy that's worth watching if you want to oh, yeah. go for a road trip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I heard Kingston. something about this uh, Shane Wright. He ain't wrong. Uh, okay, so Gus Katsuros, Cats Hockey uh, contributor, uh, big time, long time contributor at McKean's Hockey, really the backbone of that site. And uh, an analyst for NBC Sports as well. Uh, and Follow him on Twitter at Cats Hockey and uh, thank me later. That's it for this episode. Uh, after this, I'll be going back to my top 10 rankings. And up next is the Chicago Blackhawks. So we'll catch you on that episode. Until then, keep your stick on the ice, kids.